Living time and integration of the life. In the Hermetica, it is written, Eternity enters into time, and it is in time that all movement takes place. Eternity is not limited by the conditions of time, and time is eternal in virtue of its cyclic recurrence. I'd like to give you time to think about that, but I'm not going to because we have a lot of material to cover. I'm just going to go through the introductory note that Dr. Nichol has. He starts off by saying, Plato says that to become a spectator of time is a cure for meanness of soul. I love this. I just love that he said this. I love that Plato said this. And I love that Dr. Nichol knows that Plato said it. And he can tie it in with esoteric ideas and what we are attempting to do in our personal lives, in a group, and hopefully in the world. What we can contribute to the world community. Whoever listens to podcasts, what we may be able to contribute to their lives. And where that pebble dropped in the pond, where that may ripple out to, I don't know. And I don't care. But I want to do something for myself. I want to do something for you. I want to do something for humanity. Because I think that humanity has a bright potential future. And I would like to influence them in development, spiritual development. So when he says, Plato says that to become a spectator of time is a cure for meanness of soul. It makes perfect sense to me. If you can step back from time and see it, past, present, and future, history. If you can really see history. Of course, they say the only thing we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. The only thing we learn from the past is that we haven't learned from the past. That's true of humanity, but that is not true of individuals. Individuals can learn from history. You can learn from the history of the world, but you can also learn from your history. As a matter of fact, if you listen to the Fat Talk number eight, that's in there. How you can change the past by stepping back from it and seeing it. And the mechanics of how it actually changes you. Changes your past, changes your present, changes your present state of consciousness, which will also change your future. It's a very powerful idea, and it's a shame to let a powerful idea just fall on the floor and go plop, and that's it, and nobody picks it up and does anything with it. I'm excited that he's willing to look up Plato and find that Plato says, become a spectator of time and you'll cure meanness of soul. We live in a narrow reality, partly conditioned by our form of perception and partly made by opinions that we've borrowed, to which our self-esteem is fastened. We have borrowed all of our opinions. They are not ours. For the most part, the opinions that we have are acquired. We learned them very long time ago from teachers, parents, aunts, uncles, the guy on the corner, the guy who is the leader of the pack, or whomever. We learned these things, we borrowed these things, and we assimilated them so that we think they're ours, which means our self-esteem is fastened to them. And this is a very dangerous thing. To fasten your self-esteem to something that does not belong to you is stupid. It's the kind of stupid, it's ignorant rather than stupid. Stupid is slow to apprehend. Ignorant is we just didn't know. And we don't know, but we can know. He goes on to say, we fight for our opinions, not because we believe them, but because they involve the ordinary feeling of oneself. So our opinions, which are borrowed, really, and when you start to see yourself, you'll start to see that they are borrowed and that your self-esteem is attached to them and that you're fighting for something that doesn't even belong to you which really doesn't make a lot of sense to fight for something that isn't yours. Though we are continually being hurt owing to the narrowness of the reality in which we dwell, we blame life. 
And we don't see the necessity of finding absolutely new standpoints. We've got to find new ways of perceiving things. We've got to find new ideas to anchor to that will give us a different perception of things. That's what this esoteric teaching is all about. That's what all esoteric teachings are about. And I love the idea that he brings Plato into this, and he also brings the Hermetica into this, because these are ancient ideas. These are old ideas that have been around for thousands of years. And thousands of years before that, they were around in different forms. The fact that he's willing to bring them together, that he's willing to throw a net out and pull in all these fish, all these ideas, and then sort them out and see that there are some really good ideas that we could anchor our perception to and begin to change our consciousness with those. That's exciting to me. As it is, we're continually being hurt because of the narrowness of our reality. We just don't have a big enough, broad enough reality. Our lives are too small because our consciousness is so contracted. And so the idea is to expand your consciousness so that you can raise your level of being. When you raise your level of being and you are a different person, you will attract different things. You will have a different quality of life. That is what everyone wants. They want a different quality of life. They just don't know how to get it. And if they do know how to get it, they're too lazy to work for it. Or they don't know what to do to make it come about or it takes too long, or it's too much suffering, or whatever, all the reasons that we have are, and there are plenty of them. All ideas that have a transforming power change our sense of reality. This is the basis of this whole thing. All ideas that have a transforming power, you've got to see that some ideas don't have a transforming power. They just don't. Other ideas do. The idea that if you could become a spectator of time, it could cure your meanness of soul. That's an idea that has transforming power. I think I want a taco. That's not an idea that has transforming power, unless you consider indigestion transformation, which I don't in this sense. But I can see that it could be funny. It's okay to laugh, but just don't do it loudly because someone might know you were having a good time and that would really be horrible because we know you can't have a good time with this. It's like, this is serious stuff. So you really got to be serious. Transforming ideas or ideas that have transforming power change our sense of reality by acting like ferments, but they necessarily lead us in the direction of affirmation. This is another good idea. They necessarily lead us in the direction of affirmation. Well, what does that really mean? To see more wholly, more comprehensively, requires affirmation. It's an assent to the existence of new truth. You have to affirm, yes, there is something I don't know. Yes, there is something higher that if I could get hold of it, it could lift me up. You have to affirm that that's a possibility. Can you see that that is an element of faith? The ability to affirm is faith. It's an element of faith, and it's very necessary if you're going to transform. If there's buried in us the sense of truth, then we've got to admit that there is a great deal of superficial stuff that fights against it. If you have inside of you somewhere a kernel of truth, you've got to admit that there's a lot of superficial junk in your life that buries it, that fights against it, that brushes over it, that covers it, that washes it away. Yeah, sadly. And so he says, it's always much easier to deny than to affirm. Doesn't this just explain why it's easier to object than it is to agree? Doesn't this just explain why it's easier to say, no, I don't want to play, than it is to say, yes, I'll play? Doesn't just that explain it? Because it's easier to deny than it is to affirm. To affirm, it means you're taking a step in faith. You could be stepping on nothing. You could be stepping on a nail. You could be stepping on a landmine. You don't know what you're stepping on. That's an element of faith, too, that you don't know what is there. You don't know what will happen. 
You're casting your bread upon the water, and you don't know if anything's going to come back, or if the fish are going to eat it, or it's just going to get soggy, and the seagulls will come and snatch it up, and you'll have nothing. You don't know. So it's an element of faith, and it's not something that the superficial side of us, the major part of us, really wants to do, because there's risk involved. Well, what if it doesn't work out the way that I want it to? Well, what if I have to do something? What if, what if, what if? So it's much easier to deny than it is to affirm. Can we agree on that? Okay, good. It's always much easier to deny than to affirm. One reason for this is that the soul is turned towards the senses, while ideas are internally perceived as distinct from the inrush of outer things. The soul, as I've told you dozens of times, is pivotal in its action. It can turn outward, and it can look through the five senses and get all of its data from the world through the five senses. Or it can turn inward, find something more internal, higher, that is not of the world, and it can get its data from there. One of the things that the fourth way would say is higher centers. It can get its data from higher centers, or it can see the rope hanging above, which is internal, and it could grab that and pull itself up out of the sense-based mind and see things in an entirely different way. Like going up to the top of a tall building and seeing the landscape from there instead of seeing it from the street level. You're going to see more. That's the idea. Expand your consciousness. You will raise your level of being. Your life will change. Why will your life change? Because your being has changed. Is it important that your life changes? No, not at all. It just will. What's important is that your being changes. That's what's important. Whether your life changes or not, who cares? Well, of course we care. But ultimately, that's not the goal. Ultimately, the goal is that our being change. If there is no feeling of the separateness of one's existence, no sense of essential invisibility, no effort made in this direction, it's unlikely that we will ever be aware of them. The soul turned toward the senses, ideas being internal, If there's no feeling of the separateness of one's existence, if you can't see your existence separate from your life, from the things that are happening in life, from your senses, if you cannot see that in the world of the senses, when other people are looking at you, they are not seeing you. You are invisible to them. Sadly, you are invisible to yourself because your sense of self has entered into this sense-based mind and your body and your world. So it's hard. How do you know where you are? Well, you know you're sitting in a chair because you can feel the chair. Sensually, you can feel the chair. You can look around and see everything that's not chair. You know you're there because you can look around and see all the other people who are not you. You know you're not the wall because you can see the wall. You can see that you're separate from them. You know you're not the floor because you can see where the floor ends and you start. All these things are sense-based things, but we think we see ourselves that way. You look in the mirror, there I am. But that's not you. You are really invisible to yourself, and everyone is invisible to everybody else. This is an esoteric idea. This is an idea with the power to change you, to transform you. This is an incredible idea. And this is the idea he starts with. If you can become a spectator of time, you can cure the meanness of your soul. What is the meanness of your soul? What does meanness really mean? It means small. It means stingy. It means tight. It means narrow. But your soul is expansive. It's infinite. But you don't know that. We can't find that part of ourselves. All we know is this little tiny part that's stuck in this body, which is really a sad state of affairs for mankind. It is especially a sad state of affairs for you because you have heard that there's something else. And if there is something else, then who wants to stay here? Ideas clearly are internally perceived. They're distinct from the events, the situation, the flow of life. And if there's no feeling the separateness of one's existence, then no sense of essential invisibility 
If you are constantly satisfied with what you see through the five senses, you're not going to feel your sense of invisibility. You're not going to get to this other part of you. You're not going to be able to even see that this other part of you exists, that there is something about you that is beyond the five senses, that cannot be seen by the five senses, that is invisible to the five senses. And so you're just stuck, imprisoned, with no way out ever. Life without possibility of parole. And at the end, it's a death sentence because you die in prison. It's unlikely that we will ever be aware of these internal ideas. Plato described two gods or ruling powers, one outer and one inner. Under the power of the outer, the soul is tossed about in every direction and is like a drunkard. We know this very well. How easy it is for outer life to disturb your peace of mind, to disturb your flow, to disturb your wall, to absolutely make you crazy. So that's the one God. And you are truly tossed around in every direction like a drunkard. Turn towards the world of ideas, the soul begins to become sane and to remember. We don't have a big experience of this. When we speak of remember, it's not what he means. When we say remember, we're thinking of memories from the sense-based mind. He is talking about memories of who we really are, where we really came from, what our real purpose is, that the soul will begin to remember then as she becomes sane. He carries on with other things. Fortunately, we're going to have time to do it. I was so excited by that. We'll start right off with chapter one, invisibility of oneself, because this is the first thing that we've really got to get. If we're going to separate it all from this thing that we have allowed our sense of self to enter into or that our sense of self has been trapped in, if we're going to separate from this, we've got to be able to see that there is the possibility of something else. We can all see another person's body directly. People who have sight can see another person's body directly. We see the lips moving, the eyes opening and shutting, the lines of the mouth and face changing, and the body expressing itself as a whole in action. We can see people gesticulate. We can see them walk. We can see them talk. We can see them comb their hair. We can see them do whatever it is they do. The person himself, though, is invisible. You cannot see the person. What you are seeing is the action of the body. Really, what it will boil down to, and he'll bring that up here shortly, is muscle movement. What you'll see, what you know about a person, is what their muscles tell you. And that's pretty much all you know about a person, for real. That's the only thing you know for real. We see the outside of a person much more comprehensively than the person can himself. When I show you a video of yourself, it's a surprise. It's a surprise because that video sees you through my eyes, and it shows you something that you don't normally see. So it makes it clear that we see the outside of a person much more comprehensively than the person can see himself. He does not see himself in action. And if he looks in a mirror, he changes psychologically and begins to invent himself. That is why, I had somebody tell me one time, they stood in the mirror and they looked at themselves and they said, oh my God, I'm fat. And I laughed and I said, well, you've been fat for years. She said, yeah, but I just noticed it. You never looked in a mirror? No, I just looked in a mirror, but I didn't see it. And that is exactly what this is saying. He looks in a mirror. He changes psychologically and begins to invent himself. You don't see who's there. You see what you want to be there, what you expect to be there. You psychologically change. You begin to invent yourself. It happens so quickly, you're not even aware of it. But you get a video and it's like, oh my God, look at the bags under my eyes. When did they get there? Well, they've been there ever since I've known you. Oh no! Because psychologically, we begin to invent ourselves. He appears very distinct and visible, very definite and clear to eye and touch, although he is not so to himself. We are distinct and clear to him, appearing to have a very real and solid existence, but to ourselves it doesn't seem that we have this real and solid existence. 
to ourselves, we do not feel that we have a real and solid existence. We feel we're on very shaky ground, very shaky ground. We feel like we are not really in control. And when we think we're in control, we know deep down that we're not really in control. There's this anxiety, this trepidation, this sort of Damocles hanging over our heads. And you may not pay attention to it very often, but every once in a while it sneaks up on you and you know it, you feel it. You go into that panic. Because we see the visible side of people plainly, and they see ours plainly, we all appear much more definite to one another than we do to ourselves. It always looks like he's got his stuff together, she's got her stuff together. It looks like they know what they're doing. But we see them much more definitely than they see themselves. We see their definition much more than they do. And it's the same way for all of us. If the invisible side of people were discerned as easily as the visible side, we would live in a new humanity. If you could see who was really over there and you didn't have to depend on just what you thought you saw, it would entirely change all of humanity. If everyone could see who that other person really was, you would understand the person. And if you understood the person, you would never misunderstand the person. And if you never misunderstood the person, there would be no miscommunication. There would be external consideration. There would be no internal consideration. We would live in a new humanity. Everything would be different. As we are, though, we live in visible humanity, a humanity of appearances. In consequence, an extraordinary number of misunderstandings inevitably exist. <laughs> Connie and I were at a store yesterday, and I saw something, and I really liked it. I said, God, I just love that. And I said, don't you like that? She goes, no. I said, you're kidding. You don't like that? She goes, no, I don't like that. I am amazed. I would have thought that you would just love that. I guess I just really don't know you. So this morning, I was on my way out to the store, and she said, well, you know, if you wanted to get that, that would be really great. We could put it there. And I said, but you said you didn't like it. She said, well, I thought you were just kidding me that you liked it. She said, I couldn't believe that you liked it. She said, that's just not the kind of thing that you like. And I said, you're kidding. Who are you? Do we know anything about each other? We've been married 30 years. Do we know anything about each other? Is there anything that we know about each other? The fact is that she did like it, and she was telling me she didn't. But she thought I was being facetious, and she was just playing some kind of game. None of that came out until today. Really? This makes a lot of sense to me. An extraordinary number of misunderstandings inevitably exist. But you've lived together for 30 years. You should know. Yes, we should know. But do we know? No. Because we are living in a humanity of appearances, not a humanity where we see what is inside a person, what is really there. Let's consider our means of communication. Let's just think about the way we talk to each other, how we communicate with one another. They're limited to muscles, mainly to the smallest muscles. We signal by means of muscles, either in speech or gesture. If my muscles aren't working, if my tongue's not working, if my vocal cords are not working, if my lips are not working, if my jaw's not working, there's no speech. If I can't gesticulate, I can't even point or make sign language, it's all muscles, and usually very small muscles. To reach another person, every thought, feeling, emotion has to be transmitted through muscular movements and rendered visible or audible or tangible in this way. Think about that. For us, this is how we are limited. This is the limitation of our communication. It's really scary when you think about it. We communicate badly, partly because we never notice how we're doing it, and partly because it's an extremely difficult matter to communicate anything except for the simplest observations without the danger of our signals being misinterpreted. You roll your eyes. I interpret that. Do I know what you meant? No, but I think I do. You do this. 
I think I know what that means. Do I really know what that means? No. If I ask you and you tell me, do I know what it means? Not really. You may have lied. I don't know. You're invisible to me. As often as not, we don't exactly know what it is we're trying to communicate. Think about that. Nearly everything of importance can't be expressed. Because we communicate so badly, because other people understand our signals in their way, adding their own thoughts and feelings to them, an inexhaustible supply of misunderstandings and unhappiness arise. I love the way he puts that. An inexhaustible supply of misunderstandings and unhappiness arise. This is seeing the matter from one point of view. For if our invisible side were more easily demonstrated to others, new difficulties would arise. If you could see the invisible side, a whole new set of problems arise. A whole new set of problems, completely different. Now we have moral judgments. Now we have value judgments. Now we have all these other things that we start to judge. And a whole new set of problems comes up because we are incredibly arrogant. Right now, as it is, all our thoughts, our emotions, feelings, imaginations, reveries, dreams, fantasies, they're all invisible. Nobody sees those. You hide all those. All that belongs to our scheming, planning, secrets, ambitions, all of our hopes, our fears, our doubts, our perplexities, all of our affections, our speculations, our ponderings, our vacuities, uncertainties, all our desires, our longings, our appetites, our sensations, our likes, our dislikes, our aversions, our attractions, our loves and our hates, all are themselves invisible. And all of these things constitute oneself. All those things go together to make you up. That's what you're really made of. It's not the outside that we see. It's all of these other invisible things that we don't see. That's who you really are. That's what makes up the invisible side of you. And it's huge when you think about it. They may or may not betray their existence. Sometimes you can see what someone's thinking. Sometimes you can tell when they have an aversion for something. Sometimes they betray their existence. They usually do so much more than we believe, for we are both much more and much less obvious to others than we suppose. What can I say? You know this is true. I mean, you've seen this so many times. You know that somebody's lying to you. And it turns out you were right and they were lying to you. And it was obvious. You see your kid walking through the room and he's got his hand behind his back and you say, what do you got in your hand? He says, nothing. What are you hiding there? Nothing. I'm not hiding anything. And then you go over and you check and sure enough, he's hiding the contraband or whatever it is that he didn't want you to see. And you found him in a lie. But you knew by the look. You knew by the way he was acting. You knew by his body language. His inner state was betrayed by his muscles. So sometimes that happens, and it happens a lot more often than we know that it happens. People see a lot more than we think they see, than we suppose that they see. Pretty clear. No one ever sees thought. I don't see your thoughts. You don't see my thoughts. No one knows what we are thinking. We imagine we know other people, and all these imaginations we have of each other form a world of fictitious people that love and hate. It's impossible for me to say that I know anybody and it is equally impossible to say that anybody knows me. That is the truth. That truth, that idea, has the power to transform you. That idea alone, if you were to work on that idea alone, every day, consistently, that idea has the power to transform your being, to transform your life. While I see all your bodily movements and outward appearances so easily, and have a 100,000 visual impressions of you that do not exist in your mind, and have seen you as part of the landscape, part of the house, part of the street, have a knowledge of you that you always wish to know about, what impression you make, how you look, yet I cannot see into you and do not know what you are and can never know. This doesn't have to be a horrible thing. I can never know 
and you can never know. And while I have this direct access to your visible side, to all your life as seen, you have direct access to your invisibility. And to your invisibility, only you have this direct access. If you learn to use it, if you don't learn to use it, then you don't have it. There are people who have no clue who they are. We'll include ourselves. We're pretty clueless of all this huge invisible side of us. But we're aware that there is more, and we're looking, and we're trying to find it. And it's hard work. I and everyone else can see and hear you. The whole world might see and hear you. But only you can know yourself. So thus, like two systems of levers, one working with all the advantage in one direction, the other with all the advantage in the other direction, that's what we're like. I look at you from the outside, I have all the advantage in one direction. You look at you from the inside, you have all the advantage in the other direction. All this may look obvious. I have to assure you that it's not at all obvious. It's an extremely difficult thing to grasp, and I'll try and tell you why. We don't grasp that we are invisible. We do not get this. We do not realize that we live in a world of invisible people. You don't, I don't. This is not something that is available to us in our ordinary state of consciousness. That's what makes this a powerfully transforming idea. We do not understand that life, before all other definitions of it, is a drama of the visible and invisible. The reason why we do not grasp it is because it's an idea. An idea is, of course, invisible. And we may never have any ideas in the sense that I mean throughout our entire existence. There's some people who will never have an idea like this, ever, their whole life. They'll never have one of these ideas. We think that only the visible world has reality and structure. We don't conceive the possibility that the psychological world or our inner world that we know as our thought, feeling, and imagination may have also a real structure and existence in its own space, although not that space that we are in touch with through our sense organs, but another space. This is a difficult concept. It may be an easy concept when you look at it theoretically, but it's a difficult concept to stay aware of, to live by, to experience. Into this inner space may come ideas. They may visit the mind. What we see through the power of an idea cannot be seen when we are no longer in contact with it. You have had this experience where you realize something, you got a realization, you got an idea, you saw it all very clearly, and then 10 minutes later it was all gone. And all you knew was, it was like that dream. When you were having that dream and it was so clear and you woke up in a sweat and it's like, there it was. And then an hour later, you could not remember anything except a couple details. It was just distant then. And that's what these ideas are like because the dream state of consciousness is a very different state of consciousness than our so-called waking state of consciousness. How many times have you awakened from a dream and then wanted to go back to sleep to finish it? We know the experience of suddenly seeing the truth of something for the first time at such moments we are altered. And if they persisted, we would be permanently altered. But they come as flashes with traces of direct knowledge, direct cognition. Direct knowing is the most powerful thing that the soul has. Direct knowing. And that's an internal thing. And it is not dependent in any way on the outside. The description of an idea is quite different from the direct cognition of it. The one takes time. The other is instantaneous. You can have a two-day dream in a nanosecond because there's no time in the dream world. The description of the idea that we are invisible is very different from the realization of it. Only in thinking in different ways about this invisibility of everybody in ourselves, we may attract the idea so that it illuminates us directly. When it hits you, it will hit you like you're shot in the forehead with a diamond. Bam! 
and it just lights up your consciousness. But then that light instantly begins to fade until it's gone. And all you have left is the description of your experience. Such ideas act directly on the substance of our lives. The shock of contact may be sometimes so great as actually to change a man's life and not merely alter his understanding for the moment. There are ideas that shock us, and the shock is so great that it changes the direction of our life. Whether you've had one of those or not, I don't know. I suspect that everyone has had one. Anybody here has had one. I don't know about people in the world. People in the world, there are a lot of dead people in the world. Fortunately, I don't have to deal with them. I deal with you. And I know that you have had experiences and ideas that have hit you, that have changed your life. Conversion is one of those ideas. People convert. They get an idea and it changes them. They're changed. They see something and they are altered for life. It doesn't mean they don't have to fight and work, but they're altered for life. It's always there. It always comes back. The preparation of ourselves for the possibilities of new meaning. And why do we want new meaning? Well, because it's desirable, more desirable than anything else. Because meaninglessness is a disease. It can't be separated from contact with ideas that have transforming power. The perception of ourselves for the possibilities of new meaning which is more desirable than anything else since meaninglessness is a disease, cannot be separated from contact with ideas that have transforming power. If you're going to prepare yourself for the possibility of receiving new meaning, you must have contact with ideas that have transforming power. It's not going to work by reading People magazine or the obituaries, unless you see your name in the obituary and it shocks you into seeing that you don't have much time left, and you better wake up. We can think of an idea as something that puts us in contact with another degree of understanding. We cannot understand differently without ideas. So here's an idea. I am invisible. That's the idea that I want you to work with. I am invisible. The realization of one's own separate existence begins at this point. If you want to see your two separate existence, you're going to have to start with the idea that you're invisible. It swings your soul around, it swings your attention around. And your intention and your soul, for all intents and purposes, now, for you, are the same thing. Directed attention is the soul turning inward. Captured attention is the soul being drawn out through the five senses into the world, where its force is sucked dry. It's not a natural idea, because it's not an idea that's derived from sensory experience or perceptible fact. You don't get this idea that you're invisible from looking at people or looking at yourself in a mirror. You don't think I'm invisible by seeing yourself. While we know it in one sense already, it's not distinct. We know a great deal, only not distinctly, not authoritatively, through the inner perception of its truth. Ordinarily, what influences us above everything is the outer, sense-given, visible world of appearances. That's our ordinary state of consciousness. What I want you to work on this week is I am invisible. I want you to say it over and over to yourself. Repeat it often. How often? As often as you can remember. As often as you can during the day. Every day. As many times as you can think of it. Remind yourself, I am invisible. I am invisible. You can see so many ideas that I've told you to repeat that are like that. That is not I. Now you'll know why that is not I. Because you're invisible. So if you'll do that this week, next week, we'll pick up this and go a little bit further. And it'll be great. Truth is everything.